Now today, friends, in our study in the book of Psalms, we are coming to an entirely new section. Many of you will recall that at the beginning of the book of Psalms, in the introduction, I mentioned the fact that the book of Psalms can be divided like the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible. And we have been through the Genesis section, the first 41 chapters or 41 Psalms were the Genesis section. And those were the Psalms in which you had those wonderful Psalms of creation, Psalm 8 especially, a great Psalm of creation. And then there were other great Psalms of creation that we had, and Psalm 19. And it had to do with man at the beginning, the blessed man, the last Adam actually in Psalm 1. And then God's ultimate purpose of bringing his king to the throne. What a lovely section the first was. Now we come, beginning with Psalm 42 and going through Psalm 72, we come to the Exodus section. Now, we are going to find here, as you do in the beginning of the book of Exodus, you have God's people in a strange land, away from the land of promise. They are suffering people. The iron heel of a dictator is over them. You hear them groan and moan, and you hear the whip of the taskmaster falling upon them. They are in great trouble. And instead of decreasing, it increases. And finally, their cries and groans are heard, and the Lord arises on behalf of his suffering people. And so he makes good his covenant that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the Lord delivers them out of the land of Egypt. Now, you have that in this here. These psalms that we're coming to now, the first of them, for instance, the first seven psalms, 42 through 48, we find the same conditions, but it hasn't anything in the world to do with the past. It looks yonder into the future, and it reveals the future experiences of the remnant of Israel. And we're going to see them. They're away from Jerusalem. They're away from the holy place. They're out of touch with Jehovah, just as they were in Egypt. And this is something you might not note ordinarily in just reading them. There is the first section we had the emphasis upon Jehovah, the name of God. And in this section, it'll be Elohim. And why was it? Let me put it like this. We have here in the first section, the Genesis section, Jehovah cursed 272 times. And Elohim, the name for God, only 15 times. Now, when we come here to the Exodus section, Elohim occurs 164 times and Jehovah only 30 times. Now, why would that be? Well, Jehovah is this name of redemption and the one who keeps Israel. Well, they're away from God, you see, down yonder in the land of Egypt. And they'll be away from God in the great tribulation period, the first part of it for sure. Now, we have, therefore, quite an outline here. You have in these three opening psalms of this Exodus section, it's the time of the great tribulation. The book of Exodus opens with the children of Israel in Egypt, a Pharaoh over them. And we have in this section the Antichrist is certainly there. And we are going to follow right on through. We see in Psalm 43 the mention of the Antichrist, and they are mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. And then we find them crying out to God to deliver them. And then deliverance comes to them. And in that 45th Psalm, we have the great millennial Psalm of the Lord Jesus coming to reign on the earth, and so on. And we'll call attention to that as we go through. 
I think there are two things today that are quite important for God's people to see. One is that the primary and fundamental interpretation of these psalms is applicable to the nation Israel, and it looks to the future and the time of trouble. This will be meaningful for them. And that is something I think that we need to note and need to mark down. And therefore, we need to be very careful sometimes when we lift a verse out of the Psalms, just how does it apply to us? And I think it's all applicable to us today. And I believe that in this section, many of God's children that are in trouble today can find real solace and comfort. And these Psalms, therefore, ought to be more meaningful to God's children I believe that we need to look in this section more. Now you have in this section, therefore, the ruin and redemption of Israel actually in the last days. And we're going to find that David doesn't write as many of the Psalms here. Nineteen of them he wrote, and seven of the Psalms were written by the sons of Korah, and all of them are prophetic pictures of Israel in the last days. Now, with that kind of a preliminary to this study, we come to Psalm 42, which is the heart cry of the remnant in the last days, the great tribulation period. And it's applicable to the redeemed of all ages. Now, will you notice as we get into this section? And by the way, I would add something else here. This would deliver us from this terrible thing of excluding Israel from the plan and purpose of God for the future, in which it's booked so large in the Word of God. It's almost like writing off a certain portion of the Word of God and saying, yes, I believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures, but what I mean are the Scriptures that apply to me. And if they apply to some other people, especially if I'm not too much concerned about them, I don't think that's the Word of God other than as I apply it to myself. I feel like that that's a grave danger today on the part of many. Now you have in Psalm 42 the future suffering of the godly during the great tribulation period. Now you remember they were down in the land of Egypt. God first redeemed them by blood the night that the death angel went over and the blood was on the doorpost. It was redemption by blood when the Passover lamb was offered. But there's a second phase of redemption, and that was at the Red Sea, and that is redemption by power. And here you have, by the way, that redemption before us, the redemption at that time. Now, these people are away from their land, and this is the remnant of Israel. And another thing... I'm putting in a lot of introduction here, but I think this is important to understand these psalms. Another, I think, very wonderful thing for us to see is that though these psalms have a wonderful application for you and me, that we need to recognize that it is primarily for the remnant, but when we say the remnant, we don't mean the whole nation. There are these two things we need to keep in mind. When you say Israel, the chosen people, you're always talking about the remnant, not the nation as a whole. And friends, when you say the church, what do you mean? All of these denominations and churches, and you add up the role and that's the church? No, my friend, I don't think so. The church is made up of the body of believers that are in Christ and they don't get there by having their names put on a church roll or joining a church or going through a ceremony, but a personal relationship to Christ. So we ought to always make a distinction between the organized church, the outward church, visible church, as it's generally called, and the invisible. And I always said the invisible church was invisible too much on Sunday nights and in the middle of the week. And a great many people thought that was the invisible church. But the invisible church is visible, I think, when you're studying the Word of God. I used to say that the Word of God is a Geiger counter. You want to know whether there is 
uranium in them thar hills, friends, you use a Geiger counter. Now, if you want to know whether a person is genuine, put the Word of God down on them. And I found out if they're not, nothing will happen. But if they become interested in the Word of God and that little arrow on that Geiger counter just begins to jump up and down, they want to know the Word of God. I say there's uranium and there's really a born-again child of God. I think you'll find that to be a good rule to follow. So that we are talking now about the remnant. And here's another masculine psalm in Psalm 42. That means a psalm of understanding, a psalm of teaching, and it's of the sons of Korah. Now, you will recall that Korah led a rebellion, and he was a great-grandson of Levi. And actually, God executed him on account of the rebellion he led against Moses and Aaron. But you see, that didn't fall on his sons. And God made it very clear back in the book of Numbers that his sons did not die. And therefore, they are to stand alone. Now, here, they are the ones that wrote these psalms, and they're quite wonderful. Now, will you notice that we have here this prophetic picture now, the great tribulation period. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, I don't want to go back to Egypt again. I want to look to the future because this will be a time when these people will be out of the land again. And there's the belief of several Bible expositors today, and they are quite excellent, by the way. I couldn't hold a light to any one of them. They believe that the present regathering of Israel in the land may eventuate in their dispersion again, and that they'll be put out of the land again maybe in our day. I do not know that, but I want to say this. The godly remnant is out of the land, and very few of them will be back in the land. And today, you find in that land two groups. You find what we would call the Orthodox Jew, looking for their Messiah, expecting him to come, wanting the temple rebuilt. Then you find another group that are not particularly concerned with that at all, they say those days are past, we're moving in a new era, and we have Egypt to contend with, and the United Nations, and so on and so forth. And the Arabs are today our big problem and all of that. May I say to you that the godly remnant of these people will have a longing for God. Now, this is a picture I always give of David. It's a good picture of him. I think it's been a good picture of God's people any time. And I think David could have easily have said this, lying up in a cave and looking out over the valley. And as he did, he hears the hunters and the barking of the dogs. And in a few minutes, there is a rustle in the bushes and David's men become alert that are on guard duty. And then that breaks through into the little opening by the spring there at the mouth of this cave in which David is, this little animal, this little deer, and the little deer is foaming at the mouth, so thirsty, and the little sides are lathered and foamed, and he plunges his little head down in the water, takes a good deep drink, and then waits a moment, and the head goes down again. And therefore the psalmist could say, as the heart, Panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Is that the way you feel about him today? Uh, we hear so much, well, if you become very legalistic, keep the Ten Commandments, you're pleasing to God. My friend, man's alienated from God. He needs more than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments just shows we're sinners, but we're alienated in rebellion against God. We not only have no desire for him, we have no capacity for him. And we need, therefore, to be born again, brought back into the family of God, and brought to the place where we can say it, not just as a verse in Scripture, but from our hearts as the heart 
panneth after the water brook, so panneth my soul after thee, O God. It'll be meaningful in that day for this remnant away from God out of the land. It's meaningful right now to many of God's children. Now, listen to him. This is the remnant. And there was much weeping down in the brickyards of Egypt. Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? And that'll be the thing that they'll say in the great tribulation period. Where is the sign of his coming? All things continue as they were. And then verse 5, notice this. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And this is the hope. And then listen to the cry. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermans and from the hill of Mizra. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy waterspouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. That was the language Jonah used in his prayer. Jonah went down into the jaws of death. And these people will think at this time that it's all up, that they're going to be destroyed during this period. But God will come. God will deliver. We are told here, verse 8, "...yet the Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime." And in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. I say unto my God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? And do you feel like that sometime? I'm sure many of us do, but he has not. And verse 11, and I conclude with this, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Why? Well, that's a good question. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. In his desperate hour, you see, he turns to God. No help from the east or west, north or south. My help cometh from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, Psalm 43 Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. You see, the Antichrist is a liar. He makes a covenant with these people, breaks it in the midst of the weak, we're told. And this is their cry. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. You know, I'm praying this today. I don't know whether you've come to it or not. I say, oh, God, don't let a dictator arise in the United States. Don't let me come in under a dictator. And there's that grave danger today. And we need to pray to God, even like these, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. I certainly don't want him ruling over me. And I'm afraid we've had quite a few of them in our history. I'm afraid our nation is in the condition it is because of the leadership, and then because of our internal problems. Now, listen to him here. He says, verse 3, "'O send out thy light and thy truth.'" What's he praying for? Well, the Lord Jesus said, "'I'm the light of the world.'" He said, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life.'" And you know, when he said that, that wasn't lost on his hearers, because they knew that if he's the light and he's the truth, He is the Messiah who's coming to deliver them. Oh, send out thy light, thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. He wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to go back and worship in the temple and be brought to God. And after all, that's where he was taught that he was to worship God. Verse 5, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? And again, in his desperation, he turns to God, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Now we come to another mascal psalm. It's a psalm of instruction, and it's from the sons of Korah. And listen to this. 
We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days and times of old. Remember, Gideon referred back to that. He told the angel of the Lord, says, Our fathers tell us how they were delivered, but we are not being delivered. And in that day, they'll go back and refer to it, and they'll be on the verge of God delivering them again. God will again intrude in history, friends. Verse 2, "...how thou didst drive out the nations with thy hand, and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people, and cast them out," you see, "...in order to put these people in the land." Now listen to this, verse 3, "...for they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them." But thy right hand, and that right hand is the mighty bared arm of God in salvation, revealed 1,900 years ago and yet to be revealed again. This is deliverance, you see, at the Red Sea, bringing them into the land. And thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. And then in that heart cry that comes from him, Oh, listen to him. Thou art my king, O God, command deliverances for Jacob. I hope that we all understand who we're talking about. Jacob is Jacob. And Jacob is the nation Israel. When we're talking about a king, we're talking about their king. And that's application for us. But let's keep this in right perspective, and it'll make it more meaningful to us. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. That's verse 4. And through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under, who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. Now, they will feel in that day the godly remnant. They are asking for revenge. They're under the law, and they have a right to do that. And... We today are to pray for those that deceitfully use us. We are told even actually to love our enemies. Now, that's a very difficult thing to do, but we can turn them over to the Lord. And he's told us, avenge not yourselves. Why? Because we are to turn it over to him, because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And I feel like we need to turn a great many folk over to the Lord and commit them to him, not only for salvation, not only God's people for keeping, but for those today that cause us trouble. Now, I don't mean for some personal grievance, but who actually are trying to hinder out the giving of the Word of God. It's a terrible thing today to try to blacken the name of either a man or a woman who stand for the things of God. Now, I believe you ought to be very careful before you criticize your pastor. You ought to be very sure that what you're saying is the truth, because to some people, he represents God's cause on this earth. And they'll judge God largely by what he says. And if you discredit him, I think that's the reason that a great many young people have turned off the Bible and the church, is because they have sat in a home where they've had Christian parents, but those Christian parents served up roast preacher each Sunday. And believe me, that diet gets old, and it's tough. Most of us preachers are really tough, and we don't taste very good. We recognize that, but it's wrong to discredit a man who's giving out the Word of God. So here we see that they are asking for God to intervene. Now, we move down in this psalm, and I do want to move down to the very end of it. In verse 22, they're in deep trouble now, and we see them actually in the time of great trouble. The enemy is raging against them. That little horn that Daniel mentioned, that Daniel says, will wear out the saints of the Most High. They're in trouble. These are Jewish saints, and he makes war with them to overcome them. And they are warned not to fight back. And they refuse the mark of the beast, and they've been killed in large numbers, and they're crying out to God. This is the darkest moment, I think, in the history of the world. And listen now to verse 22. 
Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's not quite a picture of the church right now, would you say? There are some suffering, and there's some suffering for Christ's sake too, by the way. And there are many today, I think, that are. But by and large, the church is not in this position. What the nation Israel will be, that is the remnant. And I want to keep that very clear. We're talking about the remnant. And when we talk about the church, we're not talking about the total number of church members, our total number of churches. Verse 23, he says, Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Here is a cry for God to wake up, as it were. Well, God is not asleep. It's in their desperation that they do this. At the time that the Maccabees came to the foreground in Israel, and this is between the Old and New Testament, and that, by the way, as far as the past is concerned, was probably the time that they suffered more than they have at any time in their past history. But it'll be nothing compared to the Great Tribulation period. And they had then a group of priests that were called the Wakers. And they were the ones that cried out to God. And they raised the cry of prayer, Wake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? And in that day they felt like God was asleep. But John Hyrcanus, one of the great Maccabees, had this to say to them. He says, Does the deity sleep? Hath not the Scripture said, Behold, the keeper of Israel slumbereth and sleepeth not. And that, by the way, broke up that group of the wakers. You don't have to ask God to wake up, but certainly there are times you feel like it, and the people at this time will feel that way. Listen to them. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Well, he's not asleep. He's getting ready to move. Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore, hidest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Now, this is a cry that comes probably at the darkest moment in the history of this world. And it's at this time the king comes. This is the time that he breaks through. And that brings us now to Psalm 45. This is a messianic psalm so quoted in the New Testament. It's by the sons of Korah. And it's also a psalm to the chief musician upon Shoshanim. And Shoshanim means lilies. It's a picture of Christ as the Messiah. He's the lily of the valley, as well as the rose of Sharon, you know. And the Targum says here that, in translating this, "...thy beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than that of the children of man." Now, as we come to this 45th Psalm, we come to a very wonderful, wonderful Psalm, and we'll just stay here for the rest of this period today. Because this psalm now speaks of the second coming of Christ. And here the entire tenor and tone of the psalms change. Up to this time, it's been these people in tribulation. Now, this looks to the future. This speaks of his advent and glory, his coming as king. You have it in the 19th chapter of Revelation. And our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of it also. And this is the hope of the world. Now, here, thy beauty, verse 2, it says, Thou art fairer than the children of man. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. Now, where it says that, here's where the Chaldean Targum says, Thy beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than the sons of man. The Lord Jesus says in prophecy in the Song of Solomon, I am the rose of Sharon, I am the lily of the valley. And you remember when he was here, he says, consider the lilies of the field. And when you're thinking of the lilies of the field, consider him. And that's what we do in this psalm here. Now, listen to him in verse 1. 
My heart is overflowing with a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. It's a very interesting thing here. He says, my heart's just overflowing. I just got something I must say, and I wish I could tell it to you, because my tongue moves faster than my pen does. And I think that's true for many of us. And have you ever been very excited about something? You write a friend, and then you look at what you've written, and you, oh, you say, oh, I wish I could tell it to him. And just this day, while I've been making this tape, I wanted to write a friend of mine down in Florida. And I decided not to write him because I couldn't say what I wanted to say, so I just called him by telephone. And the psalmist chair couldn't call us by telephone, so he's given us the 45th Psalm. Now you'll have in verses 2 through 5, you have the Messiah, his person and power. Then you have the Messiah, his government and glory, 6 through 8. Then you have the Messiah, his companions and church, verses 9 through 17. Now you'll notice what he says here again in verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. This is a love song. And this is to be occupied with a person. Remember Paul mentioned that in Second Corinthians, the third chapter, about beholding as in a mirror. The Lord Jesus, and we're changed from glory to glory. We need to behold him more. Now, we are seeing him here not as Savior, but as King. Verse 3, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Now, here's when he comes forth. He's coming forth here not as Savior. He's coming forth as the King in his second coming. And we need, I think, a correct perspective of Christ. Before, you'll recall, they expected a Messiah with a sword. He came without a sword. You remember, he says, put up thy sword. He said, if I needed any help, we'd have legions of angels here. He said, they that take the sword will perish with the sword. Now, today, they expect a Messiah without a sword, just bringing peace. Well, he's coming this next time. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's Psalm 2, where he's coming the second time. And that's quoted several times in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, in respect to his second coming. Now, when he returns, he's going to find the world in rebellion. Antichrist is in power and persecuting God's people both the remnant of Israel and that great company of Gentiles that have turned to God. Now, grace is in his lips. There's also condemnation and judgment, too. But our attention is called to this. I think we ought to be realistic, not idealistic. How else will he come to power? He'll have to come to power because the wrath of the Lamb is being now displayed against a world that's in rebellion against him. And we're told here in verse 4, and let me read that, "...and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee all inspiring things." I like that translation a little better. Now notice, he's riding to victory, and here's his platform. Truth, meekness, righteousness. These are the... Three planks in his platform. Do you know any candidate today that's using these three planks in his platform? They don't sound meek to me. And truth, I wonder, and righteousness, well, that's not the motive. The whole motive today is not to do right. It's to get elected. And oh, how this poor nation of ours needs a candidate who will speak truth, who exhibits a little meekness, and who goes out for righteousness. These are eternal principles of his kingdom, and they're enduring that. No president, no leader, no dictator, no king ever comes to power on this platform in the history of this world. 
And that's the reason he's different. The character of Christ, he is the truth. His words are truth. And he's made a liar in this world today. But all men are liars, not Christ. And you won't hear the truth today in the halls of Congress or in the marts of trade or on Wall Street or in our industrial complexes or on our college campuses or in the newspaper or on the TV or the radio. All news is slanted today. And you won't hear it in a great many churches. He's coming to power on truth. And he's coming to power on this matter of humility, meekness. And humility is something that we need today. It's something that someone has said, if you wish to astonish the whole world, tell the truth. And that's the way he's coming, to power. And I tell you, it'll be startling too. Now we are told, thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby thy people fall under thee. This is the picture now of his coming to this earth. Now notice the next section here, verse 6 through 8. You have the government and the glory of the Messiah. This is his coronation day, and this is the key of the psalm. Listen, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. He's going to rule in righteousness. We haven't had that yet either. And the need of the world today is a righteous ruler. And God has that one. The Lord Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And not until then will we have peace on this earth. That's the need of the world. When Betsy Ross made the first American flag, George Washington express the wish it would wave 1,000 years. We just celebrated the 200th anniversary, and we are already growing old as a nation. But this is the eternal government of God. He's the anointed one. Have you noticed how he's spoken of you? Anointed, it means Messiah, means Christ. It's not a name. That's his official title. He came as a prophet. He's the messenger and message of God. That speaks of the past. He is today our great high priest. He's at the right hand of God. That's for the present. But he's coming as king, the Messiah. That's for the future. Now we're told here the oil of gladness. He's anointed with the oil of gladness. We always think of him as a man of sorrows. I think he was the most joyous person on this earth when he came. Will you notice this? God hath anointed Thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they've made thee glad. And he came that the joy might be full when he came to this earth. And it was for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. We need a rejoicing church. Israel in the wilderness. Judah, which means praise, led the wilderness march. They complained, they whined, and sang the desert blues, but they should have been praising God, and that's what the church should be doing today. We have a hymn that we sing at Christmas time, and it's not a Christmas hymn at all. Joy to the world, the Savior's come. That refers to his second coming, not his first coming at all. You read that Christmas hymn, and maybe you'll want to save it for another occasion. Now, we are told here, as we move down, and I must move down in this psalm, it's such a wonderful psalm. In verse 9, we have a scene at the court. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in the gold of Ophir. Now, the church is not mentioned by name in the Old Testament. You always see it in type or in figures of speech. No other way. I think most of the brides in the Old Testament are pictures of the church. Eve is, of course. And I think there are others that are. Ruth, in the little book of Ruth. And who is the queen here? Well, I think it's really a picture of the church. And she's not identified. And Christ will lift the church to the throne. And we're told here, Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people, thy father's house. Well, 
We are to leave the world. We are saved out of the world. We are loved not the world. We are to cling to him. Now, the church is to be made beautiful. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. Oh, what a picture that you have here. Sin is removed in that day. And then we come down to this very last verse that is here, and that is verse 17. And I probably ought to just say a word. Well, I'd love to deal with more of it, but let me take the last verse. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. It is the millennial kingdom. But the millennial kingdom goes on into eternity after he makes a few adjustments. After Satan is turned loose, and then he's again cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. This, my friend, is a glorious psalm. When you put it back in its perspective, it has a great meaning for us today. And I trust that we see it in its perspective. Now, friends, we come here in the 46th psalm, beginning with it, I should say, with a little cluster of three psalms, and they are all a prophetic picture of the kingdom that's coming on this earth. Remember Psalm 45, a great millennial psalm, speaks of the coming of the king to establish his kingdom here upon this earth, the millennial kingdom. So now these three psalms set before us this kingdom. And this is the reason that today more attention should be given to the psalms that we get a proper understanding of them. Now, this 46th psalm here is a wonderful psalm. It's one that God's people have turned to, and rightly so. It's called, by the way, if you will notice the heading of it, to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, a song upon Alamoth. And this song upon Alamoth, the word Alma is used in Isaiah 7:14, where it says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, evidently, Alamoth means virgins or maidens' voices. And it would refer us, I think, actually back to another great song of deliverance and of victory that was sung back when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. And we're told that they sang the song of Moses. But who led the singing? Now, I don't think Moses was a much better song leader than I am. And I'm no good at all. But the one who led the singing was his sister. And here we read in verse 20 of Exodus 15. Now, that wonderful song, and I can't go back and look at it, but when they crossed the Red Sea, they sang this song. Who led it? Verse 20 now of Exodus 15. And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea so that the song leader on that occasion and the soloist was Miriam, the sister of Moses. Now we have here another great redemption. And the redemption at the Red Sea was not the redemption by blood. That took place when they came out of Egypt. They were redeemed the night that the death angel passed over when the blood of the Lamb was put on the doorpost. And they were redeemed then by power. But when they crossed the Red Sea, it was redemption by power. And the enemies that had troubled them, they were destroyed. And here you have some think it's really a soprano solo. It really hits a high note. Now, we need always to put this psalm in here where it belongs, after the 45th. And it goes along with this little cluster, 46, 47, and 48. I don't think we have any more right to take this psalm out and look at it separately 
without looking at it in the setting in which it is, any more than that little boy that misquoted Scripture. And he was asked to give a definition of a lie. What is a lie? And the little fellow put together two Scriptures that were totally unrelated, but he got them together. He says, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord, but a very present help in time of trouble. You can see he misinterpreted Scripture. We smile at him, but what about the folk that lift this psalm out, the old psalm? I think they're more guilty of misinterpreting Scripture, by the way. And so we have here a wonderful solo. It's not the blues. It's the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's not rock music, but those that were on the rock. Now, you have in the first three verses the sufficiency of God. And this is a very wonderful section that we have here, by the way. And I think that I should read several verses. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. Now, here is a very wonderful statement. And somebody says, well, how do you know whether it's true or not? I say the Bible said it. Somebody will come along and say, well, it's a theory, and you don't know whether this is true or not. Well, my friend, I've tried it. And we're told here that the Lord is a refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And we are told, taste of the Lord and see if he's good. The Lord Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he'll know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. Now, you can count on God in time of trouble and find he's there. Christians do not learn today to trust God in time of trouble. And the reason is they do not know about the sufficiency of God. They've never found him sufficient. We need a God that doesn't fail us. Circumstances under which God is sufficient, though the earth be removed. And that's a most inopportune and extreme circumstance. Has the earth ever been taken out from and under you? Have you ever been suspended in space? Most people think they're the only ones who ever had trouble. But God's people find God sufficient in time of trouble. And that's what he's saying here. This psalm was Luther's favorite. He probably wrote the great Reformation hymn, the hymn, Ein unser Gut. That's very poor German, by the way, but it means a mighty fortress is our God. He had this in mind. Here, God is our refuge and strength, our present help in time of trouble. And men down through the centuries has found out that that is true. Now, again, we come to something quite wonderful. In verse 4 through 7, we have the security of God. Will you notice this? There is a river, the stream whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Now, some say this is poetry. It's a song, that it's figurative. It's a symbol. The river's a reality. And I believe that we have here a river that speaks of the supply and refreshment that God gives today. And that river is God's Word here. And you have a river mentioned in the Word of God in a very definite way over in Ezekiel, a river that flows out from the throne of God and that there's great blessing. This river is as real as the Mississippi River or any other river. And we are told that the blessed man, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And yonder in the New Jerusalem, we see that he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. And the Lord Jesus said to that woman at the well, He that believeth on me, 
as the Scripture saith out of his inmost being, will flow living waters. What a wonderful statement we have here. And God is in the midst of her. What a picture we have in that. And I keep on reading now. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. And the nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And Selah, stop looking, listen again. This is very important for us to consider here. Now the judgment floods have spent their force. They're gone. And now flows forth this stream of living water, a stream that Ezekiel saw and Zechariah speaks of it. And we find that it's in the book of Revelation. And here is this wonderful, glorious river that supplies the needs of God's saints. And they're all planted right by it. Now, we come to this final division, verses 8 through 11. We have the supremacy of God. And here he appeals to what would be, in one sense, the lowest level that God appeals to man on, and that is, of course, creation. Now, there's a reason for that here. We are told, "...come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow, and cutteth the spear asunder. He burneth the chariot in fire." And this is a very wonderful passage of Scripture, for very candidly, it sets before us here in a very definite way the last days when the one who is the stone cut out without hands that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision, and it has dealt an annihilating blow upon this earth. And we're told that after the war of Armageddon is over, that the dead will be strewn, the wreckage of warfare will be there. And that's the picture that's given to us here. And what a picture it is. And the works of God today ought to tell man that there is a God. And now there's peace on earth. And it's now a blessed reality. The king has come, and he's put down all unrighteousness that's on the earth. Now, will you notice the last two verses? Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Now, he says, I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. That's God's purpose. And now he says, be still and know that I'm God. We can be calm in time of the storm. By the way, the storms are blowing outside today. You and I are living in a wicked world. It's a mean old world, friends, that you and I are in today. And tremendous... Things are taking place in their great convulsions of nature today. Now he says, be calm in time of the storm. Be still and know that I'm God. Christ, you remember, was in the storm with the disciples, and he was asleep. He had more trouble calming the apostles than he did calming the storm. And he has a lot of trouble with many of us today because we don't know what it is to wait patiently before him. Well, he's going to be exalted today, and he's called here the God of Jacob, friends, and this fits in to this place. Here is a psalm that'll be a great blessing in the future. It's going to be a time of great blessing, but it's a comfort and a blessing for God's people today. Now we come in Psalm 47 that's before us, and this is a millennial psalm. And again, it continues the praise and the worship. Oh, clap your hands, all ye peoples. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awe-inspiring. He is a great king over the earth. You see, he's reigning now on the earth. And in this psalm, we find the praise 
and worship of the millennial kingdom. And the king now is on the earth, and he's reigning. What a picture that we have here. And what we have here, he is king over all the earth, and as such, he's praised and worshiped. You see, he's going to have to put down all of this rebellion, all of this self-conceit and arrogance of man, and all of the lawlessness And I'm talking now about lawlessness that's against God today. He'll put it all down, and he will reign on this earth. What a picture that we have here. It's a glorious, wonderful picture, by the way. And we're told here, he will reign and subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. This is the picture that is before us. And he's called here... He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. Now, that hymn, Joy to the World, you see, is not really a hymn that speaks of the birth of Christ. It speaks of his second coming. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, and there's going to be joy on the earth in that day. Clap your hands, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. What a wonderful thing it is. I was preaching not long ago in a church where they clapped their hands, and they were rather vociferous. And someone said to me afterward that was there, said, didn't that disturb you? I said, no, that helped me a great deal, because they were right with me. I think that today we have what we call reverence today is really deadness. They've got a lot of reverence in a cemetery. Nobody's disturbing anybody or anything. And I think we need a little life today, maybe in our services. Now, will you notice when you come here to the fifth verse, and I'm going to read now another translation here, and you follow your own. God is gone up amid shouting. Jehovah, amid the sound of the trumpet, sing psalms unto God. Sing psalms under our King Sing psalms, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing psalms for instruction. God reigneth over the nations. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The willing-hearted of the people have gathered together with the people of the God of Abraham. For unto God belong the shields of the earth. He's greatly exalted. Now, Jehovah is on high. And he's the Most High. He ascended amid shouting. And that means that if he ascended, that means that he made a previous descent. And I think that he came to this earth 1,900 years ago, born yonder in Bethlehem, but he went back in an ascension. I think you have that in Psalm 24. But here, what we have is another ascension. I think he'll come to this earth establish his kingdom and be going back and forth to the new Jerusalem. I think that between the new Jerusalem and this earth, there's going to be a freeway that's going to be busier than the freeways in Southern California with this difference. There won't be any traffic tie-up. You'll be able to move back and forth. That's going to be one of the wonderful things, and I think that's what we have here. He will descend and ascend at stated times during the millennium, and display, I think, his visible glory here upon this earth. This is a glorious, wonderful psalm, and we're told to sing praises to him. He's the God of Abraham. Now, there's a nation down here on this earth in the millennium and on through eternity. Now, when we come to the 48th psalm, we have another psalm that belongs to this series. And it's a millennial psalm, and it celebrates Messiah's complete victory. Let me read again from this other translation. Great is Jehovah, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is the Mount Zion, the sides of the north, the city of the great king, God in her palaces hath made himself known as a high tower. And I take it that when it says Mount Zion, it means Mount Zion. And when it talks about the city of God, 
and the holy mountain. We're talking about Jerusalem. And we find here a mention of the sides of the north. That's quite an interesting expression. It evidently speaks of a way of ascent and descent to this earth. And we are told that Satan, that's in the 14th of Isaiah, that Satan, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's the route, apparently. And Satan hoped actually to overthrow God, by the way. And here you have a conflict that reveals the last great battle that'll take place on this earth here. For lo, the kings were gathered together. They passed by together. They saw it and were amazed. They were terror-stricken. They started to flee. I believe that this is actually after the millennium and when the devil is released for a season and Christ goes forth to drive him forever off of this universe. Now we have a great hallelujah chorus at the end. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of Jehovah of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. This is a wonderful section. You read it for your own instruction. Now they had heard and read all about this in their prophets. And now, as they had heard, they're seeing the literal accomplishment of it all. That is the promised deliverance that God had down through the centuries been promising to them, and now it's realized. This is a glorious, wonderful psalm. It does have a meaning for us today.